2: Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm here once more Puggy, pug, 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 pug. with the uncontrollable Peter Hart and I am Gary Bain.
1: What are we doing today, Pete? We're doing Zeppelin raids on Britain. nineteen, fourteen, sixteen.
2: Now this is one episode where you'll be uh, able to use sausage. Uh, yes, legitimately. Quite a lot, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's. Uh, what's the background to this? Well, um, the. First, I mean, aerial warfare. When was the first airplane flight? 1904 or something, wasn't it? Uh, by 1911, they would showed the peaceful uh, potential by dropping. Uh, the Italians dropped a few bombs uh, in the Turco-Italian War in Libya. Have much of impact, you reckon, Gary? Do you think they blasted the the, uh, the the Turkish army from the face of the earth?
2: No, it would have had very limited impact, but uh, it, it was more of a warning to to the British particularly that in one sense they were no longer invulnerable on their island defending by the might oh, of the senior oh. service,
1: the Royal Navy. No longer an island. God bless them oh. and all who sailed in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so war... War, Gary. War. When does that come?
2: Well, that comes in 1914, and the, uh, the early plans to bomb Britain that the Germans had were dependent on taking
1: Calais. Why? Um, Why?
2: Well, that's because uh, their aircraft, in fact anybody's aircraft at the time, didn't have the range for raids over Britain.
1: They couldn't have got there and back.
2: No, so they therefore gave a high priority to develop... Uh, Bombing aircraft with a longer range. What were they called? I thought you might ask me. They were called the Flugzeug, or G-plane. I think Ooh. we'll call them G-plane.
1: I'm going to call them Gothers. Alright, <laughs> oh, well, that was
2: the best known of them, wasn't it? The Gotha yeah. G-4.
1: Now, does this sort of take a couple of months to develop this no, airplane? No, that, that's
2: not going to appear until uh, 1917. So. The Germans are quite frustrated in their plan to attack Britain from the air with aeroplanes. Ah, but they've got something else. What else have they got? Well, they turned to their fleet of airships, the Zeppelins. Sausages. Sausages. Well, they had both the range and capacity for a reasonable bomb load. And there'd been Zeppelin flights since about 1900, so a well-tested
1: method of flight. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. Now, um, so, uh, so what, 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 what sort of preparations does no longer an island Britain make? Well, the war office and the Admiralty—they're they're fully
2: aware of the need to create. So they
1: they worked in harmony, did they?
2: <laughs> well, we'll come on to that <laughs> to to maintain an aerial defence of Britain. Unfortunately. They couldn't agree on how this should be done.
1: That's not like the army and the Admiralty.
2: No. Well, since the first days of military aviation, the army had jealously guarded its claim to complete responsibility for defending the nation's skies, although
1: I'm not quite sure why. Well, especially as uh, when war came, all its strength, nearly all its personnel and all its airplanes, well, guess where, can you guess where? Can you, can you, can you guess where? Clacton. No, no, (laughs) not Clacton on scene. France, then. (laughs) Uh, well, France and Belgium, the Western Front. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, oh, we, we we this is uh, uh, there's a, sil- a simile that uh, that I, that's a close simile? to my head. <laughs> do you mean the one that suggests uh, that
2: the army found itself in the position of a bald man arguing over a comb? That yeah,
1: one? that one. Uh, I, I very rarely argue over combs or hairbrushes.
2: or anything to do with barbers.
1: No. But what are eh? they
2: now? Fortunately, the Royal Navy, Navy Air Service, in the time-honoured fashion of the Royal Navy, had to some extent simply ignored the uh, Royal Flying Corps. And you're,
1: you're going to speak up for them, aren't you? Because you are going to be Winston Churchill, First Lord of the Admiralty. The
2: War Office claimed on behalf of the Flying Corps complete and sole responsibility for the aerial defence of Great Britain, but. Owing to the difficulties of getting money, they were unable to make any provision for this responsibility. Every aircraft they had being earmarked for the Expeditionary Force. Seeing this, and finding myself able to procure funds by various shifts and devices, I began in 1912 and 1913 to form, under the Royal Naval Air Service, flights of aeroplanes as well as seaplanes, for the aerial protection of our naval harbors, oil tanks, and vulnerable points, and also for the general strengthening of our exiguous and inadequate aviation. Cool, yummy. I, I did his accent when he was a bit younger,
1: before the alcohol had got to him.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes, before the alcohol.
1: Yes, I was like, yeah, we had to, he had that accent because he had a cleft palate. He didn't have a cleft palate when he was young. <laughs>
2: Now, on the third of September, nineteen fourteen, so uh, very early in the war, an agreement was reached whereby the War Office relinquished their responsibility for the aerial defence of the realm to the Admiralty.
1: So they would just cooperate with anti-aircraft fire. The army, um, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, where possible, uh, and uh, uh, and make uh, well, they'd, they'd also make available any pilots that, that and airplanes that were waiting transferred to to the Western Front. In other words, as they were there, they might as well use them. Uh, and, and that was. The...
2: Yeah, and despite this, the, uh, the resources allocated to air defence, they're still wo- woeful. 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 And a point uh, illustrated by the treatment meted out to the first pilot assigned to the Royal Naval Air Service flight at Hendon, which was intended to defend London. And you're going to be uh, Flight Sub Lieutenant Eric Bowman of the Hendon flight, London Air Defence. Royal Naval Air Service.
1: I met the CO and he said, can you fly a cauldron? I said, no. He said, well, you've got to. It's the only one we've got. Do you know the way to Hendon? I said, no. <laughs> well, at dawn tomorrow you will fly in a cauldron to to Hendon. I went straight to the Admiralty after I landed and the fellow in charge of aeroplanes there said, now, You are the air defence of London, the only one. I said, but I've got no guns or observer or anything. What sort of protection can I give against the Germans? He said, I'll leave that to you. So I hope the Zeppelins wouldn't come over. (laughs) So, in other words, it's just a very... There is no air defence at this stage, is there? No. Now, landing
2: grounds that were later to develop into full-blown stations... They, uh, they were prepared with emergency landing grounds in the major London parks. So you've got
1: the outer stations and then emergency landing grounds. Yeah, that, that's, so, but, but, but no real aeroplanes or, or, or proper system. Yeah. Now, what else are they doing? Well, in addition to the lack
2: of viable aeroplanes, I replaced the word paucity there so just to show you I knew what it meant. Uh, the provision, disposition, and running of high-angle
1: anti-aircraft guns. Now, that's also proving to be a difficult problem. It, it is. It is. It is. It is. It is. So, uh, which bit of London do you think they protected? Tottenham. Oh uh, the, yeah, yeah. East End. It,
2: yeah, absolutely. No, I mean they—they they clearly it was the heart of London between Buckingham Palace that's and a Charing Cross. Buckingham Palace. Yeah, it encompasses the Admiralty, the War Office, and the Houses of Parliament. And uh, they were to be defended by a small link system of searchlights and guns, all controlled from a central gun
1: position at Admiralty uh, Admiral Arch. I bet this is, it, that's not really you know, going to be much good. The Royal Navy is at this time unable to supply enough men to man the installations, although they do have enough men to create the Royal Naval Division. Never mind. Um, it was decided to return to the army the responsibility for all anti-aircraft gun defences outside of London. So they'll run that little patch in London defending the royal family and politicians and uh, and, uh, everywhere else... uh the, well, distributed in penny packets everywhere. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't... Any there wasn't real impact a lot of, do you think they'd have, those penny no, packets?
2: I mean, there's not a... a there's, there's very <laughs> few suitable guns available, aren't
1: there? So, yeah, there are. Oh, high angle, yeah. yeah. Well, so they put a, what, them what, in the obvious places. Where, where? What's an obvious place? Well, it's,
2: it's obviously, uh, obvious military targets, including such as the dockyards, for example, and key munitions factories dotted they'd, around they'd, the rest of the
1: country. They'd go bang, wouldn't they, munitions factories? Yeah,
2: they would. Now, from the start, attempts were made to disguise the capital against detection from the air, so they put, like, a funny face on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but they were tempted by the fact that London's size meant that it could never be totally concealed. And I'm going to be Winifred Tower, so a you're civilian. So
1: you're going to tell us about the blackout. It's, is it an early blackout you're going to tell us about?
2: Yeah, and and we're going to have a number of civilians today, aren't we? So uh, this is the view from Winifred Tower. OK. That sounds like I'm up a uh,
1: tower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Toa. When I say
2: <laughs> the view from Winifred Tower. Or Toa. Or Toa. <laughs> as you
1: used to say in those far off South Knoxesars days.
2: Winifred Tower. Lighting regulations were very strict in London, and the streets were very dark at night. In Prince's Gate, every other lamp was lighted, and in many places only every third or fourth. All illuminated shop lights, sorry, shop signs were forbidden. Also, bright headlights on motor cars, etc. Blinds had to be pulled down as soon as the lights were lit and all skylights shaded and the penalties for breaking the rules were pretty severe People began to make preparations for zeppelin raids One big wine dealer was reported to have let several of his cellars and people we knew had furnished theirs and slept with big coats and handbags for valuables by the bedside Most people had water or buckets of sand or fire extinguishers on every landing We rather laughed at this at first but by degrees everyone came round to taking certain precautions
1: now this is one of those classic things that you're waiting for something to happen you're waiting for something to happen you're all you get making preparations and what happened in 1914 with the zeppelin raids nothing they didn't come, did they?
2: Didn't come, but the Germans were devoting considerable resources to building up their Zeppelin force, and by 1915, they were ready to begin bombing.
1: Right, so uh, so, so, uh, what, what is the overall... I mean, bombing, bombing of a city, where, are, are there any restrictions imposed by anybody?
2: Yeah, I mean, they had the backing of Kaiser Wilhelm II, uh, but he did ask that only uh, uh, civilian areas in the royal palaces should be avoided uh, the commencement of a policy of regular bombing raids brought the crude essence of war a good deal closer than ever before to the British civilian population.
1: Yeah, because the Napoleonic Wars, things like that, you just miss. You don't know they're going on hardly if you read fiction of the time sometimes, uh, uh, which I do often in my spare moments, Carol. Rarely yeah. found without a Jane Austen by my side. <laughs> well I'm speechless.
2: Anyway, the first Zeppelin raid was carried out by the naval Zeppelins. What number? L3, L4 and L6. Where was L5? On the 19th of January 1915. Although L6 had to turn back with engine trouble, L3 and L4 reached the Norfolk coast and dropped their bombs in an apparently indiscriminate fashion on the towns of Yarmouth and King's Lynn, neither of which in any way defended against aerial attack. So they ta-
1: weren't considered targets. And if you time. go
2: to those towns, even today, the, you can still see the damage.
1: That's an absolute lie, Gary. Oh, yeah, perhaps it's just what they look like. <laughs> those poor good citizens of Yarmouth and... Wherever it is. Kings Lynn. Now, um, so they weren't defended. Now, uh, what, what do you think the great British population, how do they react to this? Uh, well, there was
2: total uproar. <laughs> and they demanded that uh, more mind. anti-aircraft measures were, were were further strengthened. And the Royal Naval Air Service coastal stations, they were instructed to have aircraft constantly ready that immediate ax- action should a zeppelin be
1: sighted. Now, they also decided to, uh, to extend the blackout and lighting restrictions uh, to many of the towns across the south of England, south midlands of England too, yeah. Um, uh, th- does this stop the Germans? No, of course it doesn't. And a series of zeppelin raids do follow against a, what we call a variety of targets. Uh, but when was the first attack on London then? Well, that was by uh, LZ, oh
2: LZ even, I'm not American, LZ38, under the command of Hauptmann Eric Linartz, and he arrived unseen <laughs> over Stoke Newington, which is just up the road, at uh, 2320 on the 31st of May. Uh, so that'll be 31st May, 1915. And passing over East London, he dropped grenades and incendiaries onto the houses below. One of the streets hit was Calper Road, And you're going to be Mrs. C. Smith, again, uh, a civilian. We don't know too many details. Uh, And you're going to, to tell her
1: story. I just got into bed when I heard a terrible rushing of wind and shouts of fire and the Germans are here. I jumped out of bed and carried my four children into the basement and then went out to the street door and saw the house next door was on fire and people were helping get the children out. The father was burnt, and the daughter, who my daughter used to play with, had met her death. We later found the poor little deer had crawled under the bed to get away from the flames. That's horrible. And uh, that little girl was called Elsie Leggett, and she was uh, just three years old. And the, how do the British public react to that? I, I mean, there's a, a morbid curiosity, a fascination, isn't there? Yeah, unfortunately... Um well, a sister, May Leggett, died just shortly afterwards as well from her injuries. And, and how do the public react? Well, thousands of
2: people are reported to have paid a penny each to walk through the remnants of their former home.
1: Hmm. Now, um, th- this create, this, th- th- this raid creates a, a lot of panic, doesn't it? Anxiety, panic, the rest of it. Uh, but was there much damage actually caused by that raid by the, uh, by the LZ-38? No, I
2: mean, only £3,000 of bombs have been dropped. And only seven people killed, although thirty-five were injured. But this proved of little comfort to the bewildered population.
1: Now, uh, the, what was the RNAS doing? Uh, they, they've got their anti-Zeppelin pilots, uh, and you're going to you're going to give an idea of why they weren't too effective. Uh, you're going to be left one of our old favourites. We did a podcast. We did a podcast, on him. podcast about him, Lieutenant Graham Donald RNAS. The Zeppelins' alarm usually
2: came during the night. It was rather absurd, but to please everybody, you had to put on a show of going out to chase zeppelins. You had about as much chance of spotting a black
1: cat in the Albert Hall in the dark. Now, the raids continue over the following weeks, and they, they vary in effect, depending on what they find, how random bombs could fall. Uh, sometimes a considerable loss of life. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, which raid would you pick on? I'm just avoiding saying a couple of German things there. Well,
2: uh, Captain 9, Heinrich Mathies raid in L9 on Hull on the 6th of June, so that's a month after London, uh, when high explosive bombs and incendiaries rained down and killed 24 people, wounded 40 and destroyed
1: a lot of property. That this, this triggers something that's an unfortunate feature, but it's, in, in a way it's understandable, it's also reprehensible, because what, what do the great British public do? Yeah, with? I
2: mean, the local uh, people, they're, they're incensed and, and they start to attack anyone within their community who could possibly be regarded as of German origin. So this is your port butchers, this kind of thing. There, there were a lot of Germans around at that time in, in England. Now, in London, there was a very real sense of disbelief that the heart of the British Empire could actually be under attack And you're going to be Jane Ingleby.
1: I turned out of bed and looking up, I saw just above us two Zepps. The searchlights were on them and they looked as if they were among the stars. They were up very high and like cigar-shaped constellations. They kept getting away from the searchlights, only to be found out and caught again. It was lovely and I ran upstairs to the attic from where I had a lovely view when the guns began and the whole place was full of smoke. But not much where I was. It made an infernal row. And all the time I felt as, as if I was in a dream. Can this be London? Mm. Well, I mean, it, it is. I mean, the, the capital had never been attacked in this manner before, had it? So, uh, now there was some revenge, wasn't there? And, uh, and that one young pilot, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, a part of the Royal Naval Air Service Forward Defenses. And he, they, they were based overseas, they were based on the, in France and Belgium. And he cited, this is uh, Lieutenant uh, Reginald Warnford of One Squadron RNAS, and he cites, and you're going to be him, he cites the LZ37 over Ostend at 0105 uh, very early on the morning of the 7th of June, 1915. What happens?
2: I arrived at close Quarters, a few miles past Bruges, at one fifty am and the airship opened heavy Maxim fire, so I retreated to gain height, and the airship turned and followed me. At 2.15am he seemed to stop firing, and at 2.25am I came behind, but well above the Zeppelin. Height, then, 11,000 feet, and switched off my engine to descend on top of him. When close above him, at 7,000 feet altitude, I dropped my bombs, and while releasing the last, there was an explosion which lifted my machine and turned it over. The aircraft was out of control for a short period, but went into a nosedive and the
1: control was regained. Now, That's quite uh, incredible thinking it, it, about that. Dropping a bomb, yeah. on, yeah, a, on it, a zeppelin. Uh, now, uh, the doomed zeppelin, we have an account from that zeppelin from a very lucky man. We'll come to why he's lucky later. But basically, the zeppelin is falling down, it's on fire, it's a mess of flames and everything. And and um, uh, uh, I, I'm going to be coxswain Alfred
2: Muller. Well... Actually, can I just take you back because because the, the the zeppelin crashes on a uh, bunch of nuns, doesn't it?
1: It does. It does. That's the bit I was keeping to the end. Yes, as I mentioned.
2: Yeah, but uh, I just wonder. You pay me back for all the spoilers. Yeah, I've I'm done just in the wondering button. if that's the right co- collective noun for for nuns. A bunch. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, what would you call them? Well, not a habit of nuns. <laughs> no. Anyway, you're going to be lucky, coxswain Alfred Mueller.
1: Of LZ37. The men in the forward control car were the first to feel a great shudder of the impact and explosion. Above us, the vast envelope quivered and began to wrinkle and collapse. The wheel went dead in my hands and the gondola trembled. All around were shouts and confused orders. We were encompassed by an increasing and terrible heat. I saw dark shapes of men silhouetted against a ruddy glow as their flailing hands tried to protect their faces. Some of them climbed over the sides of the car and flung themselves into space. I could not make myself let go of the wheel. I clung to it like a drowning man until it broke in my hands. I was flung to the floor. The scorching heat increased and increased and our clothes burst into flames. The gondola began to tilt and rock until with a terrible sound the breaking wood and metal it tore away from the main structure and plunged towards the ground. I knew no more until I woke up in hospital. Now what had happened to him was amazing. He fought He crashes onto St Elizabeth Convent. It goes right through the roof. And where does he land, Gary? Where? Where does he land? Well, he lands in an empty
2: bed. Oh, so he says. Yeah. Now, he's really fortunate, hence your your comment about him being lucky, to escape with uh, burns, bruising and shock. In fact, he was more lucky than Warnford, because what happens to Warnford? Well, Warnford, he was immediately awarded the VC... Uh, but he was killed just a few days later in a flying
1: accident. Yeah, it's quite it's quite sad. Now on 7th of September, SL2 under the command of Hauptmann Richard von Wabesa, flew first over... you didn't correct me. Well, no, it was you, you said it like a like a native really, whereof Spain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> flew first over the East End before crossing the Thames to drop bombs on South London. Well, um, no, well, this isn't funny what happens here. Uh, the result in eight, was 18 killed and 38 injured. And you're going to be Mrs. F.W. Smith. Now, she was then, although that, that's all we know, Mrs. F.W. It's presumably from a newspaper report. I can't remember where I got it from. Uh, she was then only a school child, age eight. So you've got to remember, this is a, a little girl's voice uh, speaking. Uh, we're not doing impressions, though, because it's not funny. I slept with my sister,
2: Dolly, age six, in a front room, of a top floor flat at number 181 Lidderton Road, Rotherhithe. My mother and father slept in an adjoining room and along a short passage was another bedroom where my other three sisters, Minnie, Kitty and Elsie, slept in one big bed. On this particular evening, Minnie had been out until 10 o'clock with my parents as she had just won a scholarship and wanted a new outfit for her school next day. Being so late home... She kept right on the edge of the bed to avoid disturbing her sister's sleep. During the night, I was awakened by a terrible crash. I pulled Dolly out of bed and pushed her into the arms of my mother and father, who had just opened their door in alarm. As they left their bed, a wall collapsed across it. I went dashing across the corridor to call the other girls, followed by my mother. She pulled up in horror when I vanished. Where there had been a bedroom, there was nothing and I fell through three floors into the ruins of the house. My mother and father and Dolly were carried down from the front window on a fire escape ladder. The other three girls were buried for hours. When they were finally reached, Elsie, the baby, and Minnie, who was eleven, were just alive. Kitty, who was nine, was dead. Minnie owes her life to her late night, because being on the edge of the bed, she missed the crushing weight of concrete which killed her sister's. Poor little Elsie, who was also always with Kitty in life, joined her in death.
1: Now this is where I, I find I find this quite a sad uh, piece that, and it's worth remembering that although the casualties weren't great in number, that they, they they had a terrible impact. Well, they impacted the, that family. Oh God, can you imagine being those parents, or, or 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 that 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 little girl all her life when you know she when she's an adult woman, she still thinks back to it. Uh, I doubt if it ever left her mind. Now um, uh, another raid, eighth of September, the L thirteen. Uh, Who's that commanded by? (laughs) That's commanded by Captain Lieutenant
2: Heinrich Mathie, and it it causes severe damage as the bombs tumble down across London from Euston Station to Liverpool Street Station. One bomb, it scores a direct hit on a bus, and you're going to tell the story... Uh, as
1: Florence Williams I boarded the number 8 bus at Old Ford When we reached the top of Bethnal Green Road I heard a loud bang and screams Looking up at the sky I saw the searchlights all meet on, on a zeppelin As the bus went round Norton Folgate I was very frightened and started to cry A woman on a seat opposite came and sat by me And cuddled me up to her Something seemed to tell me to get off the bus and I broke away, though she made a grab at me to pull me back. There was an explosion, a blinding flash like lightning. The poor woman fell back with a terrible scream. Wow. Now the
2: passengers were helpless as the blast shredded the bus with a combination of shrapnel and glass. In all nine passengers and the bus driver were killed while another ten were injured and Florence
1: Williams goes on to say I felt myself going down and my fall was broken by a man on the bottom step. We got entwined and fell into the roadway. He lay in the road with my hat in his hand and was later picked up dead. A woman inside the bus screamed my baby my baby. I heard afterwards she and her husband and baby were killed. I just got a glimpse of the conductor still standing at his post on the platform. He, poor man, had, had an eye destroyed, but remained there on duty. It turned out I'd been peppered with shrapnel. She means little flens flenz- flenz- of, well, just bits of shrapnel. just Not, not big chunks, but c- mm. just cuts. Uh, now, this this raid, most of, a lot of the people that were killed in that raid were killed on that bus. There were 22 deaths, of which nine were on that bus. 87 uh, injured and a lot of damage to buildings. Um, what? How? How well did the London defences do? The aeroplanes, the anti-aircraft
2: guns? Well, the, the London defences—they opened up. Uh, the Zeppelin merely climbed higher to avoid the fire and uh, it escaped unscathed. But behind it,
1: it left a standing. Well, they city. must. It's happening time and time again. And and this this next The next quote has uh, some fun humorous elements i can't help but think of my own dear family and your own dear family with this one this is a mr w.a phillips who is somewhat of a sexist pick and uh, he's going to uh, just tell the story as he saw it
2: the noise of the guns and shells bursting and the bombs bursting was terrific and most awesome it was a great sight but i hope to be spared seeing it again women simply went off their heads and were difficult to control I locked my lot, wife and all, in the kitchen, but in less
1: than a minute they were out through the window. (laughs) Just for some reason, I've always found that funny. It's not funny, but it seemed funny. Um, Talking of.
0: This seaweed powered duo features two of OSEA's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OSEAMalibu.com. That's OSEA Malibu.com Code GLOW. Windows,
1: it would have been lovely to open a window just at the moment as Fred has finally farted, yes. Yes, Fred. Thank
2: you, Fred, for your contribution. That's his contribution to Christmas as well. That's his gift to you. Oh, it's lovely. Now, some Londoners, embittered perhaps by a sense of helplessness, they work themselves into a frenzy of bile and hatred for the Germans. And for
1: some reason, you've given this quote to me to read, haven't you? Who am I going to be? You're going to be Mr J. H. Stapley. To see the blasted bombs being dropped on helpless civilians and peaceable houses made the blood go to fever heat, and I felt absolutely mad. Anyway, they did some damage to poor little children and some harmless civilians going home from their daily toll, and the germ Hun devils called it war. They don't know what war means, and uh, Mac, uh, uh, and they show it and. Am- <laughs> I do, I just, I'm sorry, it's very difficult. And they, they show it immediately And when they get up against a British bayonet, behind which are the boys of the bulldog breed like yourself, for they immediately begin to cry and whine like whipped curs. Doesn't sound like the Germans that we've heard about on the Western Front.
2: No, I've but got... such feelings, they're, they're widespread, and, and it led to an outcry in
1: the press at the naked vulnerability of the capital. So what do they do? They call for a pre-war naval gunnery expert. Now this chap was getting a bit old, but he he'd been a real a real expert. He'd modernised naval gunnery. His name was Admiral Sir Percy Scott, and he was appointed to take command of London defences. Now, like any good planning officer, what did he do? He drew up a plan. What was it? Well, he he promptly
2: draws up proposals for a hundred and four anti-aircraft guns and over fifty accompanying searchlights. A mobile 75mm French anti-aircraft gun formed the basis of a special London mobile anti-aircraft section under the command of uh, Lieutenant Commander Alfred Rawlings. Sir.
1: Now, this, we'll be coming back to this because this, this mobile thing armed with the mobile 75s uh, becomes quite a big thing. They were stuck on the back of lorries, as I remember, and they would whiz about. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, a, it's it's quite a big thing. <laughs> Now, uh, the last great raid of 1915, when was that?
2: Well, that took place on the 13th of October when five Zeppelins roamed over southern England, often confused about their exact location, but dropping bombs on seemingly worthwhile
1: targets. Now, one of them, the the, uh, L5, uh, dropped a load of bombs across uh, London's theatre land. Uh, And this again, it it caused 28 deaths, 70 wounded. And you're going to be uh, one of my uh, ancestors, Sydney Hart who was an actor, and... uh... I was
2: playing in the uh, Prodigal Son at the Aldwych Theatre. Uh, Milton Rosser was speaking his lines when we heard a terrible... A bomb had found its mark in the middle of the road opposite the Lyceum Theatre, and the burst gas main became ignited. I was standing at the side of the stage and was scared stiff, frozen still. I took one look at the audience and saw that there was panic. In terror... I hid behind a piece of scenery, but only for a second. Then I rushed on to the deserted stage and shouted to the pianist, "'Play temporary. he did, and I started to sing it to the fighting, scrambling mass that was the audience. My action had the desired effect, and some people began to applaud. Then Milton Russell returned and took up his lines with me, although I was not concerned with the lines he was speaking.' We carried on until the other actors returned and the show
1: proceeded. Now that winter, uh, winter meant it's just the weather was too bad for Zeppelin raids and uh, so they pack up for a bit. Uh, During that winter there's a lot of effort to try and improve London's defences, its anti-aircraft defences. And this is where we turn back to uh, uh, Rawlinson's, uh, different Rawlinson, uh, this is uh, Alfred Rawlinson, Lieutenant Commander Alfred Rawlinson. He, he's, uh, he's got this complete mobile brigade uh, thing. Now, I was there the other day because they have a, a variety of gun, mobile guns, searchlights, all on lorries and trailers. And I slightly they,
2: worried then when you said I was there.
1: No, no, no. I was there where, where they were based because they were based at Kenwood House. And, and you know where Kenwood the House is. It's a, yeah. At the top of Hampstead Heath. Yeah. And I was there with uh, Big Rog, as we like to call him, and a couple <laughs> of other chums. Um, and, uh, I mean, Kenwood House is still there. And uh, and uh so let me just
2: establish this you went over Hampstead Heath with Big Roger <laughs> and a couple of other chums. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: Hampstead Heath's famous for as a place for walking and With enjoying. chums, with chums. Right. Now um so the idea is from up there if you think about it they can be dispatched to anywhere in, in, in that, that they were needed if, if there was a raid. Um, there were also, though, fixed batteries. More fixed batteries were being established around, uh, at key points around the capital. Uh, they were also... Um, what is one of the disadvantages of um, of, of firing anti-aircraft shells? So well, it,
2: what it, goes up? comes down. So there was design work initiated into the development of high-explosive shells to ensure that they fragmented in such a way... That lethal large pieces were not left to fall on the hapless inhabitants of London.
1: I was just switching my phone off. Oh, sorry, <laughs> it was going. That, going. Could, <laughs> that could do as much damage as the Zeppelins,
0: did. Well, to be it honest. could.
1: I mean, if if a bit of if, if a big chunk of anti aircraft shell fell on your nut, that's going to kill you just as much as a bomb. That bit would. Yeah. Um, now, so how do they start? Nineteen sixteen. Do the Germans decide peace and love to all? No. In
2: the the first raid, nineteen sixteen, the Germans attempt their their most ambitious raid yet. On the night of 31st of January, a fleet of nine airships set out in the direction of
1: Liverpool. Liverpool? Liverpool. Home of the finest football clubs that the world has ever seen. And docks, then. And docks. Yeah, you, mm. uh, you, of course, you're right. And uh, now, what, what, what is the biggest problem in trying to get to Liverpool if you don't really know where it is and it's dark?
2: Well, the navigational confusion
1: overwhelmed the you, airship commanders. They get lost, don't they?
2: Yeah, none of them reach their targets. Instead, they dropped their bombs across the Midlands, which uh, hitherto had considered (laughs) itself safe from attack and had not introduced either blackout precautions or gun
1: batteries. Yeah, uh, all right. I mean, and this is, in a sense, Britain's industrial heartland. And they had just all told one Royal Flying Corps (laughs) aircraft based near Birmingham Uh, and casualties. They were heavy and I noticed that The numbers are going up What what is the case this time? This
2: time there's 70 people dead And 113 injured The raid showed what could have been achieved If the Zeppelins uh, had avoided The uh, magnet of London which was the only area in the country to be really well defended. So, if they'd not
1: concentrated on the place where most of the defences were, they might have achieved more. Or, uh, well, yeah.
2: Now, as a result of that raid, the uh, area of blackout was extended, and arrangements tightened up for the prompt dissemination of air raid warnings across the country.
1: Uh, how do, now? How how do the great? How is the great British public? and know they are. They are the great British public. How are, uh, how are they reacting and, 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 and how are the press reacting? Now, there's one paper in particular that I've got in mind and one paper that you read. Um, how do they react? Well,
2: during the opening months of 1916, the calls for reprisals, they grow steadily. In spring, the Daily Mail began one of its inimitably xenophobic campaigns under the banner, Hit Back, Don't Wait and See. And this would become a constant theme for the rest what of the world. What do they mean?
1: By hit back.
2: Well, presumably, they want us to go and bomb Germany in yeah. some shape or form. Yeah, that's what they want.
1: Uh, and they think that'll stop them. In other words, the, the, do you think it would stop, them, or would it just make it worse? No, it'd
2: just escalate, wouldn't it?
1: Now, um, but meanwhile, there's been a bit of a change uh, 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 between... The, what, what, well, the War Office, has it accepted the Royal Naval Air Service's, uh, the Navy's dominant role in the in home defence? No. Uh, and,
2: No, Uh, and as the RFC grows in numbers and strength, they begin negotiations to regain their former position as the sole defender of the homeland.
1: Yes, well, uh, do the negotiations go well or are they protracted? No,
2: protracted negotiations, but after a, a lengthy period of time, a decision's finally made, and that does vastly simplify the situation. Henceforth, the Navy and the Royal Naval Air Service were to deal with all aircraft attempting to
1: reach Britain. So they, they, they're sort of on the front foot. So this is... they uh, One's going across the, the, the soggy bits?
2: The channel, yes. And the Army and the Royal Flying Corps would deal with all those that actually succeeded in getting through.
1: Not not, not a bad arrangement, I would have thought. Uh, now, the, uh, the Army, therefore, is back in charge of, of uh, home defence. And it doesn't really change the direction of anti-Zeppelin defences. Although they they are more keen on the potential of aircraft in shooting them down, Pro- probably because to be honest they've just had more experience with aircraft. After all, they've been fighting the Germans on the Western Front for two years by then. Um, but they, uh, they 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 do plan it in in some ways better, a, a really comprehensive plan. Can you can you t- t- give me some idea of some of the points of that? Well, as you say, it was,
2: it was uh, fairly comprehensive. Uh, it included the whole country, uh, including all the major industrial centres, and more and more anti-aircraft guns were needed as a result. And although previous manufacturing orders were nearing completion, the pressure to build and find resources was such that uh, ninety eighteen pounder guns were specially adapted anti-aircraft fire to fill the gap. So gaps. they're given
1: high-angle uh, capability. Well, that's interesting, because 90 guns, couldn't they have done that with them on the Western Front?
2: Well, certainly could have done, couldn't they? Now, the increasingly efficient mobile anti-aircraft brigade... That's Rawlinson's thing at Kenwood House. That was transferred, locked, stock and barrel to the army for the duration of hostilities.
1: Now, what about an early warning system? What are they doing at this point? Well, it's overhauled, because... Uh, uh, there
2: were a number of, uh, of false alarms, and they wanted to eliminate them. Why? What's well, what's the problem with
1: false alarms? Isn't it better that everybody's f- better to be warned if if if, if nothing's happening? Surely, than than what. Or is there another problem? Yeah, but think about
2: some of the uh, uh, indirect effects of that. So such scares severely impeded war production, for example, as huge areas were blacked out and the factories closed down the length and breadth of the country.
1: Now, this is serious, uh, uh, because I was playing devil's advocate there. Of course it's serious, because if you have something like a, a steel furnace... If you close down a Bessemer plant, it takes a long time to get it going again. And that can actually achieve more
2: than the for the German war effort than any bomb could directly. Uh, and and that had to be avoided as far as possible. So if production stops across well, half that's exactly the Midlands, exactly what the
1: Germans want. Yeah, of course it does. So what do they do to try and avoid false alarms? Well, as a result, a system of observers was set up not only on the coast but right across Britain. And they they're connected, aren't they, by telephone to Controllers, warning controllers and, and then they had a system of disseminating it to all the sub districts uh, if they thought that the zeppelin was actually going to be over their area, so they 're tracking them. This is the sort of thing that becomes famous in the second world war isn 't it which hadn 't happened <laughs> Yes now, since the start of one thousand nine hundred and fifteen the royal flying
2: corps they 've deployed specially trained night flying pilots on readiness for anti zeppelin duties while they are waiting to go overseas. Yet in reality, training in night flying was still in its infancy. And Arthur Harris, the Arthur
1: Harris, I presume. It is. Bomber Harris. Uh, Which is why him defending against air raids. It's quite amusing, but yeah. uh, He received scant instruction
2: before being nominated as the anti-Zeppelin pilot at Northolt. And you're going
1: to be Lieutenant Arthur Harris, Royal Flying Corps. When I reported to the adjunct, he said, ''Can you fly in the dark?'' I said, ''Well, I can't fly in the daylight. Maybe it's easier in the dark.'' He said, ''Well, you're the anti-Zeppelin pilot here.'' So I said, ''What does that mean?'' He told me, ''Well, the station supplies a pilot for every odd night, and you are the permanent Zeppelin every other odd night.'' There were two machines up in the end hangar which you have to look after. They are your machines. ''Go to it!'' That very night... In thick, drizzly weather, the station commander, who was a duty pilot that night, went up and killed himself before he'd gone a hundred yards beyond the end flare. That was my introduction. The next night, it was my turn. I was told to see if I could find an army's airship, which was going to fly around pretending it was a zeppelin. Oh dear. Well, by the most astonishing bit of good fortune, both the airship and myself, I found it by very nearly running into it. It had put its lights on in a panic when it saw me coming, and I suppose that was regarded as a bit of skillful scouting navigation on my part. Whereas, as a matter of fact, all I'd done is fly blindly into the night and hope for the best. So, random. But there's no radar, no lights. No, it. it, it it's like uh, Donald said. It's like looking for a black cat in a in a big. Albert Hall Hall in the dark.
2: Now, despite the pressing demands of the Western Front, it was decided that special home defence squadrons were absolutely essential. And as a result of new home uh, a new home defence wing was formed with squadrons disposed at key locations across the country and with 39
1: squadron responsible for the defence of London. Hmm. But one thing's changed as we move into 1916. It, it makes a real difference between the battle between, sort of you can portray it as a David and Goliath, a little flimsy, tiny aeroplane and a great, big, huge sausage. What is that thing that's, that, that changes the, the, ba- the balance of power between them? Well, it's the invention of effective incendiary and
2: explosive bullets. Previously, a drum or two of Lewis gun bullets, 47... 40. 47. I was going to say 41. It just passed through the Zeppelin hydrogen gas bags and caused leaks, which might busy those members of the crew responsible for patching it up, but it, it wouldn't actually cause enough gas to be lost to do more than sort of inconvenience the Zeppelin. Yeah, but what's changed now then? Well, once the Lewis gun drums are filled with a combination of Buckingham Brock and Pomeroy bullets the Zeppelin became incredibly vulnerable. because they'd set fire to the hydrogen gas, wouldn't they? Yeah. So as the Zeppelin raids continued in the spring and summer of 1916, it was clear that the improved anti-aircraft batteries were having a deterrent effect, forcing the Zeppelins ever higher and uh, scoring damage hits. So it's
1: not only that they've got this new ammunition, it's also that, 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 that there's more and better... The system on the ground
2: air- is actually beginning to tell.
1: Now, um, so... Uh, if you go higher, the bombing's less accurate. That's interesting as well. Now, the Zeppelins, they'd been intercepted by aircraft before, uh, but the Zeppelin had always managed to escape, had not they? But their luck changes on, the, uh, when, on a raid by 16, Gary, Zeppelins on the night of 2nd, 3rd of September 1916. And that is the day that the balance of power passes to, to the aircraft. And you're going to be Muriel Darrell Browning. At two-thirty, I was awakened by a
2: terrific explosion and was at the window in one bound when another deafening one shook the house. uh, Nearly above us sailed a cigar of bright silver in the full glare of about twenty magnificent searchlights. A few lights roamed around trying to pick up his companions. Our guns made a deafening roar and shells burst all around her. For some extraordinary reason, she was dropping no bombs. The sight was absolutely still, with a uh, a few splendid stars. It was a magnificent sight, and the whole of London was looking on, holding its breath. It's like
1: a giant theatre, the skies of London, as this drama. Uh, And and now it's got searchlights, just like in a theatre, and it means people can see.
2: Now, into this natural uh, theatre flies Lieutenant William Leif Robinson on anti-Zeppelin patrol. He'd taken off at 2308 in his B2C... We've heard of them. We have. From 39 Squadron's headquarters at Sutton's Farm Airfield. And he climbed slowly to his patrol height. And you're going to be Lieutenant William Leaf Robinson of 39 Squadron Royal Flying Corps.
1: At about 2.05am, a a zeppelin was picked up by the searchlights over north-northeast London. As far as I could judge. I flew about 800 feet below it from bow to stem and distributed one drum along it, alternatively New Brock and Pomeroy. It seemed to have no effect. I therefore moved to one side and gave it another drum distributed along its side without apparent effect. I then got behind it. By this time I was very close, 500 feet or less below, and concentrated one drum on one part underneath rear. I was then at a height of 11,500 feet. I'd hardly finished the drum before I saw the part fired at glow. In a few seconds, the whole rear part was blazing. When the third drum was fired, there was no searchlights on the Zeppelin and no anti-aircraft was firing. I quickly got out of the way of the falling, blazing Zeppelin and, being very excited, fired off a few red very lights and dropped a parachute flare now this isn't a, a zeppelin it's actually a shoot lance which is uh it's the sl 11 it's 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 got a it's different it's got a wooden frame instead of a metal frame uh, and it well it also contains highly inflammable hydrogen uh a bit like um, uh, no that's methane he's asked uh,
2: now once that's... a night the blaze quickly become uh, a, a became a conflag a conflagration a, what, Gary? a conflagration It was on fire uh, yes, <laughs> which could be seen both at close quarters by Leif Robinson and in the distance by the team in thousands standing in the streets of London. Fast. And
1: uh, Lieutenant William Leif Robinson goes on to say, "When the colossal thing actually burst into flames, of course, it was a glorious sight, wonderful." It literally lit up all the sky, all around, and, and me as well, of course. I, I saw my machine as in the firelight and sat still, half dazed, staring at the wonderful sight before me, not realising to the least degree the wonderful thing that had happened. My feelings? Can I describe my feelings? I hardly know how I felt. As I watched the huge mass gradually turn on end and, as it seemed to me, slowly sink, one glowing, blazing mass, I gradually realised what I had done and grew wild with excitement. Now, he's, he's awarded the VC, the Victoria Cross, for this, isn't he? Um, yeah, he's the first to be given uh,
2: a VC for an action fought with uh, an enemy over or on British soil.
1: Now, what's it look like from the ground? Well, uh, it's quite a sight, uh, the, uh, the, the, the demise of the SL-11, and you're once again going to be Muriel Dayrell Browning. From the direction of Barnet and very high, a brilliant red
2: light appeared. We thought it was an English fire balloon for a minute. Then we saw it was the Zepp diving head first. That was a sight. She dived slowly at first as only the foremost Ballonet was on fire. Then the second burst and the flames tore up into the sky. And then the third and cheers thundered all around us from every direction. The glare lit up all of London and was rose red. Those deaths must have been the most dramatic in the world's history. They fell, a cone of blazing wreckage thousands of feet, watched by eight million of their enemies. It was magnificent, the most thrilling
1: scene imaginable. Wow. Well, uh, people do refer to it a lot. Now, uh, it it eventually falls to earth uh, near Cuffley in Hertfordshire, and it's right in front of the house of, of a young schoolboy. Fifteen-year-old schoolboy, Gary. Uh, what was his name? Who am I going to be? You're going to be Patrick Blunstone, who was staying uh, in Cuffley on holiday. There, right above us, was the Zepp. It had broken in half and was in flames, roaring and crackling. It went slightly to the right and crashed down into a field. It was about a hundred yards away from the house and directly opposite us. It nearly burnt itself out. When it, was, when it was finished by the Cheshunt Fire Brigade. I'd rather not describe the condition of the crew. Of course they were dead, burnt to death. They were roasted. There's absolutely no other word for it. They were brown, like the outside of roast beef. One had his legs off at the knees and you could see the joint. Just uh, to correct it, Cheshunt. I've never known. I mean, funnily enough, I was talking about a chum of mine, Stuart Pentecost, saying he lived at that place in Cheshunt dogs contributed again. Mm, Now,
2: as if this first success over London had broken the spell, over the following months there were a string of successes as several more airships were brought down. On the 1st of October, Captain Captain Lieutenant Heinrich Matty, commanding L thirty one,
1: was shot down over Potter's Bar. Now you're going to be the the, the person who did it. This is Second Lieutenant Woolston. What a name! I wish I was called Woolston. Woolston Tempest. It's, what a great name that is. Uh, again, thirty uh, the squadron responsible for London, thirty nine Squadron RFC. The zeppelin was now nearly fifteen thousand feet high
2: and mounting rapidly. I therefore decided to dive at her for although I held a slight advantage in speed, she was climbing like a rocket rocket, and leaving me be standing. I'll say that again. Like a rocket and leaving me standing. I accordingly gave a tremendous pump at my petrol tank and dived straight at her, firing a burst straight into her as I came. I let her have another burst as I passed under her and then, banking my machine over, sat under her tail and, flying along underneath
1: her, Pumped, led into her for all I was worth. Can I just say, I could see what he might have done wrong here in other circumstances, flying underneath her. Mm.
2: I could see trace bullets flying from her in all directions, but I was too close under her for her to concentrate on me. As I was firing, I noticed her begin to go red inside like an enormous Chinese lantern, and then a flame shot out of the front part of her, and I realised she was on fire. She then shot up 200 feet, paused and came roaring down straight on to me before i had time to get out of the way i nose-dived for all i was worth with the Zepp tearing after me and expected every minute to be engulfed in the flames i put my machine into a spin and just managed to corkscrew out of the way as she shot past me roaring like a furnace i righted my machine and watched her hit the ground with a shower of sparks I then proceeded to fire off dozens of green very lights in the exuberance of my feelings.
1: I love that. That is a wonderful. Can you imagine? I've shot it down. <laughs> as it comes, I mean, it must have been an amazing sight as it comes tearing after him.
2: But also he's now the second person, isn't he, to let off the very lights as, as some sort of celebration of the act of, shooting one of these things down yeah
1: well they're, they're just so amazing yeah now this is part of a string there's a string of british successes anti-aircraft guns uh, uh pilots shooting down zeppelins in in late uh, autumn 16 uh what does it show what does it show gary what well it, it demonstrates
2: that when an airplane armed with a new incendiary and explosive ammunition got an airship in its sights then it was inevitably doomed <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it and it doesn't have to be one of the the most modern aircraft, did it? Because uh, what did we say the aircraft was? Leif Robinson was flying.
2: It was a B two C, and it's it, that's a much castigated machine. I think that's the one that was designed to have a, a steady
1: platform. Wasn't yeah, it? it was the one that was. Uh, uh, well, it it was just completely out. It was a 1914 airplane uh, reconnaissance aircraft. Now that was the
2: B two C was responsible for destroying nine of twenty one airships down by airplane. Wow!
1: Wow! Um, so um, the, there there's a pre-war fear that the German airships would be able to range with impunity over in their Zeppelins over uh, Britain. Now that had, that had almost appeared to be true in 1915, but what, what's happened to it in 19, late 1916? Well, that's been exploding, and, and uh, although airships continue to raid right the way
2: through until August 1918 by the end of the second year, even the Germans could see that the hour of the airship had passed. Gone. Now, this is the first in a series, Pete, isn't it? On, first of two, yeah. <laughs> on uh, Well, that's a series. It
1: is. It's a series. If, it, if there was three, it'd be lots. Yeah, one, two, three lots, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah we're we're, and we're looking to the second one the second one's more on the gothers it's 17 18 and the zeppelins make a brief return in 18 i think it's it's interesting a change of pace for us too as well isn't it gary it is mm-hmm. now we
2: hope you've enjoyed uh the podcast today if you had perhaps you'd like to uh, visit buy me a coffee and uh, indeed buy me a coffee don't buy Pete one no pete, pete just doesn't want one but i would like one and in fact i'll have Pete's as well that's very noble
1: of you gary it's been lovely recording the podcast yeah
2: now we're probably approaching new year when this is broadcast so i don't know we hope that all our listeners have a a great new year It's, it's certainly better than 2021 and we hope you continue to listen to the podcast we do cheers gary cheers pete happy new year happy
1: sausage year
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
2: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at slash.